Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have uh, two co-founders, you know, some very, very interesting, you know, uh, profiles, very interesting track record and, and backgrounds. And definitely we're going to be learning a lot about uh, markets that are heavily regulated. You know, we're going to learn about home insurance and tech, I mean, you name it, and building and, and scaling companies as well. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our Guest today, Sean Harper, and then also Lucas Ward. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. Thanks for having us. So why don't we do a little bit of a walk through memory lane, guys, to get to know you a little bit. So why don't we start with Lucas? So Lucas, I know that you were born and raised in rural Missouri. How was life there? Not as exciting as it is uh, in Chicago. <laughs> why is that? Ah, uh, you know, I mean, uh, we had our one stoplight and a Burger King, so um, I guess if if that's your definition of exciting, then you know, um, you know, the smallest, the biggest town over, you got to drive, you got to drive into. Um, I graduated with sixty people in my high school. Um, I probably switched middle schools and high schools like seven times. So I probably went all of them in similar sized towns. Um, so I think, in a lot of ways, that's probably what drove me to computers and the internet in the first place. Uh, was a connection with the wider world, um, even if it was uh, on dial-up. So why don't we talk about that uh, just for a little bit, Lucas. Tell us about how you started to develop this love for computers. Um, you know, I think, I, I, well, I remember being bought a computer um, from Walmart. Um, I think it was, a, uh, I don't even remember what it was. It was very, very crappy. Uh, my parents have never been very good in, about computers. So somehow I ended up figuring it out and it was the one. And I, and I think almost all of that started from wanting to play games. Um, which I think is similar to Sean as well, where, you know, you were trying to get the games playing and you couldn't figure it out. And back then it was a DOS prompt. So you had to, you know, you had to like get everything in, you had to type into a DOS prompt. So it was kind of used to working outside of a windowed environment for a long time. Um, and then, you know, we didn't really have a lot of money. So I started learning how to put computers together and build them because that was the cheapest way to do it. And I could, um, and I got salvaged parts and I found people to give things away. So I learned how to build computers from there. Um, funny enough, I think at my, the high school I ended up graduating from, there was a class, which was me just fixing the school's computers, um, that I got an A, um, but yeah, I just went around and fixed computers in the school. Um, that tells you the state of the kind of the, the schools I was at. So, uh, I mean, it's still a good learning experience, but very cool. 
Very cool. And then you went and got your your computer science degree from Missouri State University, and and you went to corporate America and uh, open source. You started to really develop, you know, that that learning, that uh, that exposure to open source with Accenture. Tell us about this. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely uh, definitely a big shock for me. I'd never actually been on a plane before, and then I joined Accenture and uh, started living in them. Um, but yeah, I I got a, a great a great opportunity where. Um, you know, Accenture at the time was working on a lot of big batch processing systems. So, you know, these things were processing millions, if not billions of records at a time. Um, and they were rebuilding the frameworks and nobody had ever built something like a batch processing framework, And but Accenture had built them internally. So I ended up getting pulled into that and creating a version. What we really wanted is at the time, Accenture was getting good luck from using these external frameworks. I think Struts is a good example uh, in the Java world. And that was creating a lot of continuity between client sites. So Accenture really liked it because you could switch resources around and they kind of knew the framework. And they got to the point where they stopped viewing internal frameworks as some kind of competitive advantage and realized there was a cost. Um, so they're really pushing it. And I was kind of at the forefront of pushing sort of open source, which was kind of all happening along with outsourcing in the early 2000s. Um, so I, you know, I wrote the first version of that. I worked with um, the people at SpringSource, which um, you know, later was bought by VMware. Um, and we, we put that version out. And so I was working on a lot of clients, probably 20 or 30. Everyone's from state of Illinois, California, uh, city of New York to um, Chase. Um, I even worked in, uh, in Europe, um, which, was, which was really fun for me uh, in, my, in my early to mid-20s, um, which you know, gave me a pretty big, broad overview of a lot of these things um, before kind of moving on. So I guess, uh, obviously, you were doing a bit of uh, corporate here and but I'm just wondering, what was that first exposure, you know, to startups? Because obviously you did ThoughtWorks, Funspire, and and then RippleShot. But but what was that first moment where you finally, you know, said, "Oh wow, look at look at startups, what they are like." You know, this is really cool. I mean, it was probably SpringSource, um, if I think about it. And the funny thing is, I hadn't actually thought about that before. But yeah, the uh, SpringSource was my first one. Where I remember going to their offices. Actually, they were um, it was in Southern England. Um, and they had like a little, there was like eight people in the office and kind of going down there. So I think that was actually my first, uh, startup experience. Cause you're right. Everything else was very big corporate up until then. Yeah. So then why don't we talk, uh, Sean, let's go through your, through your background a bit here. So obviously, you know, like obviously as well, uh, you know, a little bit geeky, you know, in terms of uh, love for computers and, and all of this. And, uh, you started programming quite early. So how, how early? It was probably... 11 or 12 when I first started to program and uh you know part of it was I just wanted to make things and part of it was my parents I had, I had like an aunt who worked for a tech company and had made a lot of money off of it my dad was like you should do this like this is a good career he's he's pretty geeky too uh and and so they uh they encouraged me to you know, get by book. I mean, at the time it was like crazy. Like you, you couldn't look things up on the internet. Right. So it actually made programming a lot harder because you'd have to go and buy a book and look it up, how to, how to do something. And, uh, and so I, I just got into that. Um, and, and I really liked it. Uh, you know, it's, it, I've always just liked making things and the fastest way to make something cool is on, is on the screen. And, yeah. uh, and that sort of got me into business stuff too, because, if you're making something, the next thing you want to do is get people to use it. And then you have to figure out, well, how do I promote this? And how do I figure out what it is that people want? And how do I charge them money for it? And, and how does this all work? And 
And then it was actually through through programming that I got into business stuff. Got it. And, you know, obviously with your uh, background and track record, you are what I would call in the positive and, and good sense, a very dangerous uh, entrepreneur. And the reason why I, why I say this, Sean, is because you've had experience in consulting. You've had experience also on the investment side, you know, on a, on a venture capital firm. So not only you're able to really understand how to uh, resolve problems, perhaps grab big problems and then break them into smaller problems, but then now you're also able to really identify patterns of what makes companies successful. So can you tell us about these two experiences and what you learned from them? Yeah. So the, you know, my first business I started sort of as a side gig when I was working at a VC firm. And uh, from that, the biggest thing I learned was that you actually can start something out of nothing and have it turn into something. And I had started this business with a friend and we pivoted like twice and it, it started with a product that nobody wanted and, and actually just sort of iterated our way into a really profitable business. And, you know, I think that really taught me that it's okay to take a leap. Like you don't need to be a hundred percent sure about something. Like you can actually just sort of get out there and start selling something and, and, and pivot off of that. Um, and, uh, it, it gave me a lot of confidence. So then my second business I actually started, it was a payment processing business and, I had been running this e-commerce business, which was my first one, TS's radio. And uh, I started Fee Fighters basically out of a frustration in that there were not very good uh, online payments options at the time. This was in like 2005, I guess. And, uh, you know, PayPal was stagnant. Stripe didn't exist yet. Square didn't exist yet. And so I've been sort of struggling with these legacy payments guys. And, and I knew from my time at BCG, this was the other cool thing about consulting is you learn how things should work. And I'm, I'm sitting there looking at this. And I'm like, gosh, like big companies pay 2% for their payment processing. Why am I paying five as a small company? And it, it turns out there are actually a lot of reasons, um, but, but they're all ones that are, in surmount, that, are, that are easily surmountable if you have the right tech and the right business model. And so, uh, you know, with the... Uh, with Fee Fighters, I learned that uh, a really good pattern, I learned two things. The, the, a really good pattern for us as techie guys is to go after financial services because there's no physical thing. Uh, everything at a bank, everything at an insurance company, everything at a stock brokerage is done online on the, on the computer. You're really just pushing data around, but you're getting paid way more to push that data around than, than you are in most businesses. and. Uh, you know, from that, from that, I always just wanted to do more financial services stuff. And the, you know, the, the other thing that I learned was that, uh, I had seen all of the, that the problems that I had seen at the big companies when I was a consultant were like really, really good hunting ground for starting a new startup. Um, yeah. and, and that's been true, you know, Ken, a lot of the, uh, investment thesis for Ken came out of work that I did when I was at BCG working for a big insurance company. And, uh, yeah. And obviously you, 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 you got this business acquired by Groupon, no? Fee Fighter. So I guess, you know, this is the, a great opportunity to really see the full cycle of a, of a business. So, you know, if you, when, when you were there, perhaps, you know, doing the Vesting and resting, you know, at the, at Groupon, you know, some people don't rest as much as as, as 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 much as others. But I guess when you were doing the vesting and resting and really reflecting on the journey, what what was that big takeaway? 
Yeah, you know, I didn't really rest invest at, at Groupon because Groupon, when they bought us, was still a startup too, really. I mean, they had just gone public and they had all kinds of problems to solve there. And and as a problem solver who just, you know, I, I saw all these problems as opportunities. Um, so I, I actually did a bunch of stuff that was outside of the business that they acquired at Groupon. Um, you know, especially automating like the onboarding and underwriting of merchants to the Groupon platform. But that that was a cool experience because I, I got to know what it was like to work at a real tech company. You know, everything that I had done before was like I mean, VC is VC. <laughs> you know, doing these little startups, uh, you you just you only know what what you do. You don't really know like what best practices are and stuff. But at Groupon, they had a lot of people who were from Amazon. They had a lot of people that were from other big tech companies, and they sort of uh, it was a good education for me. I learned like what does a product manager at a big company actually do? And it turns out there's actually a lot of stuff they do that's a value that uh, I had never done before. So I learned a lot. And and Lucas, why don't you tell us about that day where, where you met Sean? Uh, yeah, I was at a coffee shop that Sean worked out of uh, almost exclusively at that point. Um, I, think, I love that coffee shop. Yeah, yeah. He was very... <laughs> it, was, it was also next door to this uh, Middle Eastern restaurant, both of which have closed down now because we like cycle... Um, I remember I was really at a, an inflection point in my career, having done a couple startups. I was really thinking about where I wanted my future to go. And I, and I, I think a lot of it, um, you know, I think it's one of those things I look back now and we were just, I was just like, came in with just brutally honest, like, I don't know. Right. Like I've taken, hidden some singles or doubles. I really just feel like I want to take a big swing. Um, and I think that was a lot of the, you know, the impetus for it. Um, and Sean was telling me about the thing he was involved with at the time. And I, and I remember distinctly saying, I think that's dumb. Um, and it, and what shows you to Sean's, um, both persistence and, um, selling ability, he convinced me to join, um, even though I immediately thought it was dumb and it turns <laughs> out I was right. You're right. But, um, but he, you know, he's, he's a, uh, convincing dude. Got it. So then Sean, so tell us, uh, you know, how did you guys really incubated, you know, the idea of, of kin insurance and, uh, and then, you know, like what was that process of bringing it to life? Yeah. So I, I think, so I, I had been um, looking for something that fit this pattern of uh, a financial product that hadn't been in a, that hadn't been uh, streamlined yet. Because, like I said earlier, you know, if you look at a, if you look at what's really happening in an insurance company or bank, it's basically software. They just aren't very good at software. And uh, so Lucas and I were working on this this sort of turnaround gig, and you know, kicking a bunch of ideas around. I remember we would just like take walks and just like, Hey, what about this? What about that? And then we go and we, we do a little bit of research and, uh, and it was fun. Um, and, and we were around that time, I think we both bought our first houses and because that's what you do when you're in your mid thirties. And I just remember being so shocked by how anachronistic the house buying process was. And we say, there's gotta be something there. Like, why is it so archaic the way that people, I mean, there's all this paperwork and this negotiation and you have to like do all this stuff and it's all managed on spreadsheets and emails. Like it's really inefficient. It shouldn't be this way. And so we, we wanted to pick a piece of that off. And, and I was like, well, you know, what was really surprisingly frustrating was just getting insurance for this house because like a lot of people, I was about to close on the mortgage and the mortgage guy goes, oh yeah, you know, you need insurance for this house. And I was like, really? He was like, yeah, you know, to close on the mortgage, you need insurance. I was like, okay, cool. So you should call your insurance agent. 
And I was like, what? My what? Like, do you mean like Geico? Like, I guess I could call it Geico. Uh, <laughs> you know, who, who has an insurance agent anymore? It's not really a thing for people our age. And, right. uh, and so I, I did. I went to Geico's website where I had my auto insurance and I tried to buy home insurance from them. And it was, it was crazy frustrating because they basically sent me off site to some Liberty Mutual site where they asked me all these questions about a home that I didn't even live in yet. I'm like, you're asking me what kind of shingles are on the roof of this home? First of all, I don't know. Second of all, I'm scared of heights, so I'm not going to climb up there and look at it. Uh, and it was just so frustrating. And the, and the one thing I actually did have a question about was whether this giant tree in my backyard was covered. And there was no way to get an answer to that. And so I, I think that was when we really started thinking about thinking about homeowners insurance. And uh and you know, we we're very deliberate and like uh practical guys. So we we sort of laid out a plan of, hey, what are the things that we need to prove to ourselves before we think this is a good enough business that we should really invest our time in it? Um and the first the first thing was we thought it might be possible to eliminate that whole like question asking sign up thing and make it make it make you able to insure your home with one click and uh you know we thought that would be possible because if you search for your address online you see like there's all of this data about your home uh and, and so the first iteration of that was really just us sitting around in a conference room like trying out new apis and saying mm -hmm. could if you give me an address can i piece this together that i know enough about your home to insure it and you know, at the end of a few weeks of screwing around, we were kind of like, yeah, actually, like, there is a lot of data out there. This all kind of works. Um, and then the second question we had was, well, we don't want to build a bunch of software and stuff if we don't think we can get customers. And so we built, like, this really, really basic MVP, which is really uh, a little bit of a wrapper around a retail insurance agency. And Got it. And, 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 and both of you actually... In that, in that, in that sense, uh, Sean, you you both were, uh, you know, had the engineering background. So, so I guess, uh, Lucas, how did you guys divide and conquer? And then also, how did you go about building the team? Yeah, I mean, I think in the early days, it's very like, um, you know, I, I was doing most of the coding. We did everything in sort of Rails. Um, Sean was doing. I think initially it was like product tech because I remember the first version you did that whole Mad Libs thing. Yeah, you were filling that yeah. out. Um, so I think we divided it that way. Cause that was, I think the way we were used to working. That's the way we'd been working previously. Um, we were doing it that way. And, and I obviously, you know, I think what Sean probably kind of glossed over is we actually went out and bought a retail insurance agency. So what I think, I think if you go back to like the, the singular thing you can think about as an entrepreneur is that, um, there's a lot of these things that you can just do it. And I think what hangs up a lot of people from starting businesses is, is pretty much that single thing of like, no, you just go do it. Um, and so the starting point was that. So we, we actually found one and were able to purchase it and that we were able to sort of layer this on because I think the next, one of the questions we were able to ask is like, are we actually able to make this better, um, you know, without going too deep in? And, and I remember, you know, not long after doing that, that, you know, the quote time was what, 30 minutes. And after like layering in the tech, it went down to five minutes. Yeah, it took, it took Lucas like two weeks to make the thing six times as efficient as it was before. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just me, and we were still part-time. And I think that sort of is naturally where things have progressed since there is, you know, we, very, very quickly, there was a lot of these sort of external things because I think the thing about going into an industry like home insurance, which isn't, you're sort of the first wave of innovation. There's just all of these things that exist in many other spaces that help enable startups just don't exist. So there's been a lot of things externally that, that have had to been pieced together to even allow us to do things we need to do to sell anything. 
Um, and I think that's where some of the, some of the like how the beginnings of Sean and I's working relationship to date started to form. And you know, it's uh, interesting what Sean was was mentioning earlier. You know, when when purchasing the house and and dealing with an archaic process where you had to you know call your insurance broker. So here, you know, obviously that was probably the case because it's very hard to innovate in markets that are heavily regulated. So the the issue here is that not only you guys are dealing with the uncertainty of uh, building a company from nothing, but then also with the uh, uncertainty of making sure that you are complying with the regulatory frameworks that, that you have in front of you. So, so Sean, how did you go about reducing that steep learning curve as well on the compliance? <laughs> we just had to go out and do it. You know, so, so we found out pretty quickly that it's actually very easy to get licensed to sell insurance, which is what the initial business model was. So Lucas and I actually went and like got uh, licensed as insurance agents. We took a class and took a test and it's, it's not hard. Um, and then we had to figure out, okay, well, what's the next step? Because we don't, we can't innovate the way that we want to do if we're, if we're just wrapping somebody else's insurance product. There's all this innovation that we want to do and we really want to run everything through our own core system. And uh, we knew from the start that we didn't want to be selling tech to insurance companies. Absolutely. It's just the adoption cycle of that is so long. Like the reason why that industry is so messed up right now is that it takes a big insurance company like a decade basically to shift their tech from, and that's if they're really dedicated to it. Uh, we didn't want to have to wait five years to have somebody buy buy our software. Uh, well, so that, well, we did have that sort of, I remember very distinctly, Sean and I had two rules when we were going forward to do this business. Like anything we were doing had to be able to get big and it had to be able to do it fast. Uh, and I think anything with a big enterprise sales cycle fails the second check every time. Got it. So I guess to follow up on that, uh, Lucas, what ended up being the business model? Well, I think when we were looking through, you know, with those in mind, we were looking at the insurance industry. Um, you know, the reason home insurance stood out is one, it's a very big market. It's a hundred billion dollars and, and rising. Um, the other thing about it is that it's 94% sold through agents. Um, and so, you know, as entrepreneurs, when you see something that has a, a big, uh, you know, manual process, you know, you think, wow, I could probably automate that. The other interesting thing that I think shocked us from the very beginning and got us interested is that, you know, agents make up about 15 to 20% of the cost structure. And it's not even like a lead gen thing. They get that year on year. Yeah. But it's actually, it's actually worse than that because an insurance company and homeowners insurance, they spend 70% of their money paying out claims. And then there's 30% is like their real cost structure. And of that 30%, between 15 and 20 is getting paid out to the agent. So it's actually like half of the real cost structure. Yeah. It's a huge part of it is getting paid to, you know, these, these tiny operations of like two, three man operations and strip malls all over the country. Like there are more insurance agencies than there are fast food restaurants, Yep. which to me is insane because I eat fast food once a day, not necessarily McDonald's, but like, you know, maybe Chipotle or something. And uh, I've never, ever been inside of an insurance agency. <laughs> and I think it's true of most people. In fact, if you go stand outside an insurance agency, you won't see anyone going in and out. They're all, they're all doing business over the phone and email anyway. Um, yeah. So, so we, we just wanted to rebuild the entire industry, like the whole, the whole stack. And the, the natural thing that we gravitated to was, hey, we want to start an insurance company. And so we looked into that and we were like, 
oh crap, this is really hard (laughs) because getting getting (laughs) licensed as an insurance agent is really easy. Getting licensed as an insurance company can take like years and also tens of millions of dollars, if not more, just sitting there in the bank that you can't spend to make sure that you have the credit rating to get regulatory approval. Um, Yeah. And so, uh, so, so we, we found an intermediate point and that's sort of what we did next was we, we became this thing called an MGA, which basically is a virtual insurance company where you run the whole operations or at least most of the operations of the insurance company, but you, you borrow or rent a license from another company. And, and so that's what we did for the next two years really. And, and it, it was a good business model because, uh, it was, it was easy for us to not easy, but it was easier than starting an insurance company at the time. It's all relative though. I don't think that it's a lot of these things. I think Sean and I were surprised because we, the thing is, is we came from regulated environments. We were really used to that. And actually the, the, you know, some of the things, especially in payments are, are extremely tightly regulated and we expected insurance to be just as tightly. And, um, it, it, because it's regulated at the state level, it's very, very different. So you, you end up, and I think this is how we ended up sort of focusing on finding the states with the good opportunities um, for us and, and really working on them. Because if you want to, if you want to be able to be in the entire U.S., you have 50 states, 50 different regulators to go through. Um, and that is obviously challenging. Yeah, no, and obviously, you know, to, to think as big as you guys, you know, were thinking, you know, and, and are thinking, you know, that requires some capital. So, so Sean, how did you guys go about fundraising? Yeah. So we, we raised the, the first round, which was really just at the beginning. This is when we were just doing the, the, the first version of the software that didn't take that much money. We wanted basically enough money to hire a couple of other guys to work on this with us. And so we were able to go out and raise, it was almost 800 K from basically from people we knew. Yeah, you know, it was other entrepreneurs, and it was people we had worked with before, and that was an easy round because they they trusted us. Uh, and you know, we we didn't know exactly what we were doing, but they knew we were smart guys who had a good track record that were going after a big opportunity, and that was enough. Um, a year later, we were just launching the first real version of the product. And that was the MGA version of the product, and that was a little bit tougher because for the first time we had to raise money from. Like our friends didn't have enough money for that round. We were mm-hmm. trying to raise like $3 million and we had to ask strangers for money. Mm-hmm. And, and that's always a lot harder, um, especially because we hadn't launched this product yet. It was expensive to build it. We had to build all of this tech. We had to negotiate this complicated agreement with this other insurance company. And it was, it was hard and expensive. And, uh, you know, but fortunately, we, we basically just brute forced our way through and we found some investors who believed in it. Um, who were who were basically folks that our first investors had had introduced us to, um, and and that was that was great. I mean the the you know value that the first group of our like super tight friendly investors added was not just their money, but it was also their connections. They helped us raise the next round, um, and and from there it's been a little bit easier because when you have a business that's going and it has metrics, and if you're growing and you know, sort of showing the progress that you should, that, that it makes things a bit easier. So the next round was our series a, and that was much bigger. It was $12 million. We raised it from a VC with a really good reputation. That was, that was actually kind of an easy round. We had a bunch of term sheets. We got them quickly. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's, it seems like 
like each like we have one easy round and then one hard round <laughs> because uh shortly after there we decided we didn't like this whole virtual insurance company thing it was too inefficient it was too slow we hated having our fate rest in the hands of somebody else like that was just very uncomfortable for us and so then we set out to raise a much larger round uh to actually you know fund the business but also to have that big pile of money i talked about to get our own insurance license and that was that was harder because uh the kind of investors we had been raising from were these tech VCs and, and they were really excited about the business, but what they were not excited about was having $35 million just sitting in the bank doing nothing mm -hmm. for regulatory requirements. Um, so we had to go out and meet a whole new type of investor. And so we ultimately ended up raising that regulatory capital, not from VCs, but actually from a reinsurance fund and from a life insurance company. And, uh, yeah, you know, we just didn't know anyone in that space. So it, it actually, that round took like a year to raise because it was just folks that we didn't know. We had to network our way into that space and explain to them what we were doing. And I mean, when it takes that long, you know, it's obviously, it's a tough battle as well, no, emotionally. So I guess, uh, you know, like uh, this reminded me, like, can you guys share perhaps uh, Lucas and, and maybe Sean after maybe like a moment that, that has been, difficult uh and perhaps it was like a breakdown or or it was an actual breakdown that that led into a breakthrough i mean i think the moment sean's talking about because I, I i would say deciding to be a carrier was one of those chips all in moments like the, the that's the way that i describe it a lot because it, it was a bet we were making and i think sean and i have had two or three of those different inflection points where we said let's just do it um and and we knew we knew there was some risk involved but we knew to do the vision that we wanted to do that that was that was what was going to happen and I think that year, Sean and I probably were the, there was the least overlap between us because Sean, like Sean described, that was really, really hard. Um, and, and, you know, credit to Sean, because he did a, you know, most of the work on it. I mean, with a lot of other people on the team and where I was working internally, because we had to have, we had to all of a sudden be a complete insurance company. We had to have our, all of our tech systems, all of our people had to be lined up um, such that, you know, it would be terrible for Sean to get the money. And we don't actually have like, a business that can actually operate as an insurance company. And so we had kind of zero overlap um, between the two of us. Now, luckily, Sean and I have always had this sort of, we would tend to be on the same page without having to talk too much about it. But that was a really, really, you know, trying and defining year for us. Um, you know, and ultimately we, we got there and it, it got over it, but it was, uh, it was very challenging. So I guess uh, to follow up on this, uh, Sean, perhaps a moment that it felt like a, like you were really, you guys were really turning the corner and, and you really felt, I think we're, we're into something big here. Yeah. Um, one that I'm thinking of is, this is like four months after we had launched the first, the MGA version of the product. And we knew we were going to grow fast on a percentage basis in those first months. And then we just kept like doubling like every month and it was like holy shit did we just double again it's crazy <laughs> like can we possibly do that again next month uh and then sure enough we did and we just we were growing so fast it was like nothing that we were hiring like a new person every day and it was just like wow we're really on to something like people really really want what we're selling uh and and that was that was exciting because you're always, I, 
I'm always worried, you know, am I building this for no reason? You know, is, is, is there not going to be a market there, especially with things like this that are pretty hard to build? Uh, that, that was exciting. That was mm -hmm. cool. Very cool. And, and Lucas, how big, you know, is the, is the operation today, you know, or the business, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, you can tell us about the number of employees or whatever you think, you know, would, would paint the picture for the folks that are listening of, of Kin. Uh, I mean, yeah, we're into the hundreds of employees now. Um, you know, we have a pretty decent sized dev team. Um, I mean, we kind of, we're all, we're all together. Um, you know, because we're a direct carrier, we actually have sort of an ops organization, which was interesting for us. You know, um, I've, I've had some, some people that were on the phones with customers, but I don't think to this size, we have, you know, a lot of those people and have our own call center at scale, um, which is, which is pretty, pretty interesting, uh, pretty cool, uh, especially being able to sort of walk by and hear them talking to customers in here. And I know Sean and I both at times will sit over there and, and kind of listen to those things. Um, and I think, I think now we actually have sort of a lot of the pieces. We have insurance people working here, which I think is an interesting thing that we've done. People that have, uh, you know, like actuaries, and stuff. actuaries. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have, I mean, you know, uh, sometimes I think it's like, we're an actual insurance company and we have, we have all the things, uh, Compliance, we have, claims. Yeah. Um, all across the board. Um, I think that's the, uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely times when you're, you know, having done this from literally just me and Sean, you know, in a coffee shop to here where you are in your office and looking around and you're just like, oh, there's hundreds of people here. <laughs> That's amazing. And, and I guess, uh, Sean, you know, when, when you have hundreds of people, you, you need to make sure that uh, you guys are embracing culture at the same time, because when you're growing fast, you know, it's, it's very easy for, for kind of like things to, to, to fall apart when it comes to culture. And, and people is everything, uh, because without people, there's nothing. There's no numbers. There's no results. There's nothing. So how do you guys go about culture, Sean? We're working. It's actually more of a Lucas question than a Sean question. Yeah, so, I think, ahead, um, yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, as we build up people, I think the one thing is, is that you have to think about culture. Um, because if you don't, one will develop and it probably won't be a good one. Um, so one of the things Sean and I did early, I think where Sean was more involved with culture was, um, you know, we, we always had the joke that we had four company values, right? One of them was one run through walls. And really that was a bias for action because we'd seen this before where people weren't doing things because they were, you know, you know, afraid they might do the wrong thing. And we say, you know, basically ask forgiveness, not permission. Right. Um, the second one was, was be chill. And I think anybody who's done at least one startup will tell you how much it's just sort of like, there's a lot of things going on and people are going to make mistakes and you're going to have things thrown at you and everybody just needs to be cool. <laughs> um, because if you don't and you get really angry and it just, it just, it's, it's not good. I think, also, I think Sean and I have always had this cultural thing about we shouldn't be doing anything that you can't do you for, know, a long time. for a long time. I think I've described it to some people actually just recently to a group of college students that they're doing a startup is like a marathon. If you're being chased by a tiger, that's on fire. Um, because if, like if you, if you, you know what I mean? So you can't, you, you, it, it's very tempting. And I know I fall into this in the past where you're like, Oh, we got to get this next fundraising thing. And we're just going to kill ourselves. And the thing is, is that, well, actually, when you get to that new fundraising thing, you're expected to take that money and do a bunch of things. You really have to just keep yourself at whatever level you can maintain. Um, and the the other two values that we had, uh, we actually forgot, which is the third value, that if, if something's not providing value anymore, don't don't keep it around. And when one of the challenges when you're growing a business is that you have to become a new company roughly at every fundraise. Um, you know, now now we're now we're building a Series B company. Um, you know, before building Series A, and those are very different things, and some of the people you hire are different, and some of the concerns are different. So, 
Um, just because we did it, we do it this way or have done it this, this way doesn't mean we should continue to do it that way. And I guess uh, not only you become a new company, so you also become a new executive because, you know, you can't lead a company the same way when you are, you know, uh, at a seed stage than when you are probably at a Series B or a Series C. So, so how do you transform yourself uh, and you're able to keep up with the, with the growth of the business eh, as well, Sean? One, one big thing that we've done that's really helped is we have a, a, we really want the person who has the most information to make the decision. And so we always push decisions down to the lowest level because the reality is there is nothing. There's not a single thing. Maybe there are a couple, but there aren't very many things that Ken that I know more about or Lucas knows more about than, than somebody else. Mm. <laughs> right? like, there's always an expert of something. And so I think a lot of founders, they, they really stumble when they get to a certain size and they can't be involved in every decision. Um, and, and, you know, we, we just don't want to be that way. Like, I don't want to be the gating react and I don't want people to wonder like, oh, what would Sean think? I'd actually rather have them look at the data, make a decision. And if they need help, then, you know, we're there to help them. Um, and, and our job as leaders is really more one of, um, unblocking people and making sure that we have the right people working on the right things than really getting involved in the day-to-day. Uh, and I found that to be really helpful as we scale. It's, it, it's only becoming more and more helpful. And also the employees really like it because it gives them autonomy and, and they don't need to worry about somebody micromanaging them or looking over their shoulders. I think it's also yeah. Sean and I hate managing. So we always we haven't had a lot of the troubles with the delegation versus management thing because we've always just hated managing. So we're always looking to hand something like that off uh, to, to focus on the bigger thing. Yeah. You create a really nice, like virtuous cycle there where if you hire people that can handle their own business, then you don't need to manage them. Mm -hmm. And if you're not micromanaging them, then of course you attract that kind of people that, that want to just, you know, work, get things done and not have somebody. So basically hiring leaders rather than followers. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, I think so. Love it. Okay, so so one question that I typically ask the folks that come on the show uh, is, you know, knowing obviously what you guys know now, I mean, incredible, the 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 right, you know, with Kin, you know, like what you guys have been able to accomplish, um, you know, all, all of these different milestones that you've achieved. I guess now looking back um, in time, you know, and, and maybe we start with Lucas. And then, you know, Sean, you can you can go ahead with, with your thoughts on this. So, Lucas, if you had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, what would be that one, be, one piece of business advice that you would give yourself before launching a business and why? Wow, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, it's funny. I think where, the, where my brain first goes and you think about things is um, one of the things that I've learned the most is how much is probably not how not to get hung up in the past. Um, you think about some of the things you think about if you were to tell your younger self something, right? Um, and I've thought about this before. How would I explain this thing to my younger self? And I and I think knowing my younger self, I know he flat out wouldn't have listened. <laughs> so like you think about it and you think about this sort of how important the experience is. And, and so I, if there's anything that I, I guess I've learned is how important failing is, um, that you, you just got to go and do the thing and you've got to fail and you've got to be okay with failure. 
you you have to say like I failed at this, but I'm not a failure. You have to be able to, um, I guess, kind of control your emotions enough to not get so hung up at that that you can sort of look objectively at the failure and be able to improve from it. Um, because if you're so worried about whether you're going to fail or not, or whether this is going to work, you're going to end up just kind of not doing anything. Yeah. Um, so that's, I guess that's my answer. <laughs> that's very, very powerful there. Uh, Lucas. So Sean, what, what, what would you say? I think I, uh, I would tell my younger self to go big and go faster. And, and the, the, it always seems, it, it has always seemed easier for me to do like the practical small thing, like bite off a small, but the problem is when you're doing that, you don't have the grand vision and you're not trying to do something that's really transformative. It's actually harder to attract really good. It's harder to attract resources. It's harder to attract money to that. It's harder to attract people to that. It's harder to attract attention and press. And so I, I wish that I'd started going after bigger things earlier in life, because in, in some ways going after the bigger thing is actually uh, easier. So, so much easier to get resources for it. And it's sure a heck of a lot more fun. Got it. And and guys, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Maybe there's like um, a customer or a website, or maybe you guys, you know, one of these, you know, share your 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 social media handles. So maybe we start with you, Sean. Yeah, uh, we're on we're on Twitter at Kinsured, um, and uh, you can always hit us up on uh, on the website, which is kin.com. Great. And do you guys have any social media, Twitter, LinkedIn? Do you guys use any of that stuff? Well, we, we have them. Um, <laughs> I remember a time when I had the time to use them. All right. So pro probably better, you know, to just uh, you know, avoid that then for the folks that are listening. So, you know, I just want to say guys that it has been a, a pleasure to have you both. And thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker Show, Lucas and Sean. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for having us. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.